if you're in the US, good afternoon or evening or uh, whatever the time of the day, if you join from elsewhere. My name is Nicolas Veron. Uh, welcome to this first session of the new financial statements series at the Peterson Institute. Uh, let me, as participants start joining in, let me use time to say a few things in introduction. First, about the series. Uh, so this financial statement series is new. This is the first um, inaugural session. Uh, it is part of a portfolio of new event series that we're experimenting with at the Peterson Institute, uh, and indeed the second such one. The first being the trade win series that was started by my colleague Annabel Gonzalez uh, on trade policy issues uh, last month. And each of them, trade wins for trade, financial statements for finance, uh, caters to a specialized community. Uh, so we really want to build up a community and, uh, if I can put it that way, organize a, a conversation in that community. Uh, among uh, expert people, but also some things that should be ac accessible to a broader audience. So, so we're experimenting with that, and uh, I hope you will enjoy the experience. Uh, I want to particularly thank the Peterson Institute team uh, that made this possible. Uh, Steve Weissman, our Vice President for Communications, uh, and his team, Helen Gillibrand, uh, on the website, Matt Panizari, who made all the technical stuff possible, Ivan Priestley and Jessica Parada for uh, meeting organization, Rebecca Ackerman, uh, Angeli Bat, William Melanson, Oliver Ward, who helped design the visual identity for the series. So uh, it's really a team effort and I'm probably uh, forgetting many people. And of course, last but not least, the Institute's president, Adam Posen, who gave the initial impulse. Uh, so, uh, so, so we're very uh, excited by this new endeavor. We're still in a way in testing mode. Uh, please send me suggestions uh, if you have any for uh, improving that experience from a participant's perspective. So let me turn to our agenda today. And we want to talk about credit prospects because uh, that's we're in a moment when uh, it's particularly important and I think also difficult to assess uh, prospects for corporate credit and the read across for uh, the banking system, the financial system, and more broadly, the economy and uh, people. So for that, we have a stellar uh, combination of participants, um, Anne van Prague and David Wilcox. Our guest speaker is Anne van Prague. She's managing director of global strategy and research at Moody's Investment Service. And there for Moody, she leads a team, a global team that defines and develops macroeconomic views and provides strategic insights and on emerging risk trends and credit development. So exactly the kind of things that we want to um, uh, focus our attention on today. She first joined Moody's back in 1998. So she almost counts as a lifer, if I can use that word. Uh, she was briefly at Morgan Stanley in, in the 2000s for two or three years, but otherwise in different positions at Moody's. So, so uh, from a credit analysis and ratings perspective, we can barely uh, think of anybody who would match uh, Anne's expertise and, um, and uh, skills for um, presenting on that. And David Wilcox, who will be in a way her discussant, uh, is um, at the Peterson Institute, which she joined uh, last year in August 2019. But his claim to fame, obviously, is that he was at the Division of Research and Statistics of the Federal Reserve Board as a deputy director from 2011 uh, to 2000, uh, 2001 to 2011, uh, sorry, for a decade, uh, working very much with Dave Stockton, who's also uh, with us at the Peterson Institute. And then he succeeded Dave as director in 2011 until 2018. So um, as uh, effectively the chief economist for the Fed, uh, he has been a leader uh, in economic analysis, forecast analysis. I also want to mention, because that's important right now, that he's been a leader at the Fed and more broadly in the economic profession on uh, improving diversity and inclusion in the Fed, in the economics profession, now at the Peterson Institute. And obviously, that's something that resonates a lot right now. He has also former experience at the Treasury. He has been assistant secretary. Uh, for uh, economic policy at the Treasury and uh, has had many other uh, significant policy positions in his distinguished career. 
So enough for my introduction. Uh, I'll, um, I've said enough for now, and I'll give you the floor immediately uh, and over to you. Great. Thank you so much, Nicola. And it's uh, great to be here. Thanks to the Peterson Institute for inviting me. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here with David to talk about these interesting topics. Um, we have uh, certainly had a very busy time at Moody's trying to wade through the, the wide variety of um, stresses that we're seeing across markets uh, with the coronavirus itself, the macroeconomic impacts of that, the low oil prices, and uh, the, the really tough financing conditions that we saw through uh, most of the month of March and into April. So what I thought I would do today is, is um, share a little bit about how we've approached this crisis at Moody's, um, talk about how we're managing ratings in these very turbulent times, uh, share some of the, the way that we're thinking about um, navigating the, the very fast-moving events, but also taking into account some really high levels of uncertainty about the future of the economy and of different sectors that have been most hard hit by this. And specifically, we'll talk about corporates and banks. And then um, really be interested to engage and, and hear people's questions about um, how you're seeing things and, and uh, what we could do better to, to make clear how we're approaching things. So with that introduction, I'll, I'll dive in. We have um, a, a very um, collective, coordinated effort at Moody's to look across sectors and to try to identify which are the most affected companies and banks, um, but also governments and, and really to understand the landscape. To do that, we have, um, uh, you know, we've seen this very unprecedented combination of shocks. Uh, we know there has been a significant geopolitical impact to this, and obviously a very strong and aggressive worldwide economic response. So the combination of those things um, has uh, really important implications for how we think about credit um, directly as it directly relates to our credit outlook. Um, we can see what the channels from the real economy to credit are and to credit markets. We've seen investment grade bonds uh, issuance be fairly strong. And in fact, that was a, a main initiative of policymakers was to get that market back up and running quickly. Uh, there have been a lot of opportunistic capital raising uh, efforts that help bolster balance sheets of companies that have been the most hard hit by this. And we'll talk a little bit about that. On the high yield sector, um, you know, this has been a, a very growing market in the US, especially in the last uh, decade. It's something that we've been signaling as a growing risk for the economy. Um, and what we saw immediately was a very rapid spread widening. Um, and that, that has come in quite significantly now, um, maybe around 500 basis points on average for high yield borrowers. Um, and access still remains very good for the stronger of those, uh, what we call speculative grade borrowers or uh, recent fallen angels, those that were investment grade and have tipped over into speculative grade. The leveraged loan market is, is functioning less well. It's, it's really in the very nation stages of recovery. Um, and so here, if you were a borrower that was relying on leveraged loans or, um, uh, you know, facing some rollover of, of debt maturing or other liquidity needs, you, you probably were caught out. And that's where we're seeing a lot more stress in the market today. So moving very quickly through, obviously these macro assumptions inform our credit outlooks. I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time here, but just to say that the economic recovery we expect to take hold pretty soon. Um, we've had a very sharp recession in the second quarter, and we expect um, that for the full year for the U.S. it'll be around a negative 5.7 percent uh, drop in GDP. Um, as I mentioned, the high yield spreads very, uh, very much widened and are coming back in now at around 600, maybe 500 basis points, depending on what type of borrower you are. Unemployment rate is uh, still extremely um, challenging. We have 40 million unemployed in the U.S., and that creates um, some real pressures on consumer-driven businesses. Um, and the real question is when those consumers will get back to spending. 
Um, so the approach that we've taken is we we looked across all of the 40,000 plus ratings that we have in various uh, sectors at, at Moody's and we said, okay, we need a very coordinated, centrally managed approach to this crisis. Um, this is not like anything we've ever seen before. Um, and we've taken um, some real steps to make sure that we're being clear and transparent to the market about how we're approaching this. In early March, uh, we we put out a report that was called Managing Ratings in Turbulent Times. And it basically said, we're going to rank order sectors. We're gonna identify the most exposed sectors. We're going to then find out which issuers within those sectors are also most vulnerable from a credit perspective. And so this slide sets out the process that we use to do that. We use some pretty simple techniques here. We use things like red, yellow, green bucketing for sectors and then uh, within each sector, which are the most vulnerable uh, rate, uh, rated entities. And it's it's been those entities that had a material uh, drop in their credit quality or where we expect they'll emerge from the crisis with significantly weaker balance sheets that we're moving ratings. We're not aiming to move all ratings. Actually, ratings have been fairly stable through this crisis, um, but we have moved a number of them and We'll get into to what some of those are. So for corporates, um, and you know, it's really the tip of the spear sectors, as we call them, that are the most exposed. It's the airlines, the automotive, gaming, retail, oil and gas, global shipping. Many of these companies had um, increased leverage coming into this crisis. They had weaker covenants and lower ratings um, and very uh, loose financing conditions for several years that supported carrying costs of higher debt. But with this crisis, um, a number of these companies are now really you know, facing a period of zero or very low revenue and no cash flow for a period of time. So, um, and the prospect of recovery is looking very slow. For airlines, for example, we don't expect to see pre-COVID levels of airline travel uh, until 2023 or 2024. So for each of the industries, we've identified kind of a base case and expectation for recovery. And it's those companies within each category that we're uh, moving individually down um, as we think it's appropriate. On the banking side, banks entered the crisis with uh, very much a strength in capital position and higher liquidity. Um, asset quality has been supported by government loans, liquidity support, and, and um to support to both corporates and individuals. We haven't seen uh, much deterioration to the balance sheets and the relative positioning of the global investment banks. It's really been around regional banks in the most ex affected areas or those with highly exposed, uh, ex high exposure on the, the loan side to affected sectors. And then um, some other more specialty firms, mortgage servicers, trade credit insurers, aircraft lessors, and fuel companies. Um, and what we've also seen is that for both corporates and banks, the default rate has risen dramatically. We, the long-term historical average default rate is about 4%. Uh, the monthly average is uh, for May here is about 20 and uh, globally and a little bit uh, a little bit lower in Europe. Um, that number ticked up uh, uh, in the month of May from April. Um, and uh, what we're seeing for um, our latest counts for June is, um, is expected to come down a little bit. The default rate itself is um, hovering you know, above that historical range. And we expect a year from now that that will be closer to 10%. Um, and so we expect to, to see that peak somewhere in the nine to 10% over the next year and then start to come down again. Um, on the structured side, obviously, as you get uh, a lot of these loans, corporate loans packaged up and um, sold as structured financings, um, there are significant exposures throughout the structured finance portfolio. Coming into the crisis, we heard a lot of concerns about the rapid rise in CLOs. This is the collateralized loan obligations, uh, both in the volume and the weaker corporate loan quality underlying them. Um, this was somewhat offset by tighter credit standards and higher rated tranches, but we 
um, we do see significant weakness across the structured portfolios, again, mostly in the mezzanine and junior tranches, not so much in the senior level tranches. So um, with all of the stress, we have um, taken a significant number of rating actions. The depth and breadth of our rating activity and research is, is definitely greater than in previous crises. Around 12% of the corporate or the fundamental rated um, issuers have been downgraded, mainly speculative grade corporates. Most investment grade corporates have not um, had their ratings affected. On the structured side, about 7% of the, the 42,000 rated bonds by count um, and slightly less by volume outstanding have also had rating actions. Um, we have published a lot of material. It's probably hard to keep up with all the things we're publishing, but we have a moody's.com slash coronavirus website that's free and available, all of our content. If people would like to engage uh, more with us, we'd be happy to hear from you. And with that, I'll pause and pass it over to David. Thank you, Anne. This was a fantastic um, way to set the scene, uh, and I'm looking forward to David's comments. Anne, if uh, you could unshare your screen, that will free me to. There we go. Thank you, um, Nicola. First of all, it's a pleasure to join you on your inaugural edition of uh, Financial Statements. I think this is a very worthy uh, launch event, and it's a great pleasure to participate with you as well. Um, in my brief remarks today, I thought I would focus on the theme of uh, uncertainty. This has been something that I've uh, paid a lot of attention to over my 30 years as a macroeconomist. I thought one place to start might be with the initiation of the more formal version of the economic projections that are submitted by Federal Open Market Committee uh, participants. As part of that poll, um, FOMC participants are asked to rate the amount of uncertainty that they anticipate in coming quarters uh, about average relative to the standard of the past 20 years, greater than average or less than average. It's a truism that hardly anybody ever says that they anticipate that the future is looking less uncertain than average. Almost all, even in normal times, almost all the responses are either uncertainty is about average or uncertainty is greater than average. That said, I think it is a fair statement today, much more fairer than usual to say, wow, uncertainty uh, at the moment is just extraordinarily high. And I thought I'd outline, uh, start by outlining six dimensions of extraordinary uncertainty. First of all, uh, the size and speed of the downturn. Uh, it is just literally unprecedented in US economic history and I think in world economic history. Um, by way of illustration, I uh, estimated the silliest, most simple model that one possibly could for the unemployment rate. I regressed the unemployment rate on two lags of itself. And I ended the estimation period in December of uh, last year when everything was still looking smooth, placid and fine. The unemployment rate was approaching three and a half percent, a 50-year low. There was no trouble on, in sight, and the only question was how long this period of renaissance could persist. Then we know that the roof uh, fell in. A simple calculation leads to some rather absurd uh, results in terms of the forecast error that one generates out of this uh, simple model. Uh, but suffice it to say, any time that a model is generating a result that the forecast error in April was 66 standard deviations, you're truly in unprecedented uh, waters. The source of the shock is also uh, extraordinarily unusual uh, in U.S. business cycle history. Uh, many post-World War II recessions were deliberately induced by the Federal Reserve because inflation had gotten out of hand. That was assiduously not the case in this circumstance. This uh, economic uh, slowdown collapse is uh, a deliberately induced coma in effect for wide swaths of the economy. 
uh, and it is undertaken for public health reasons. It's absolutely imperative for that. But the fact that the source of the shock is different will mean that in yet another respect, our models are in uncharted territory. The sectoral concentration of this shock is highly unusual in the typical post-World War II shock. Uh, it, uh, the hardest hit sectors are uh, sectors such as durable goods. That's why they're labeled the cyclically sensitive uh, sectors. Those are the sectors that are generally hardest hit when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates in order to fight inflation. Again, that's just not the case in this particular circumstance. Today, the hardest hit sectors have been ones that involve intrinsic, intrinsically involve high elements of interpersonal contact. Anne mentioned as just one simple example, the airlines. Uh, I think it'll be personally, it'll be a long time before I'm comfortable getting back in an aircraft in an enclosed space with large numbers of other individuals coming from uh, circumstances that I have no visibility into. There's tremendous measurement uncertainty. We don't even actually know where the economy was uh, in May. Um, this uncertainty is itself unprecedented in, uh, in my career in any event. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has been admirably transparent about it, but they have been very clear that substantial numbers of individuals were misclassified in uh, the last three reports to the two and five percentage points of unemployment in April and uh, a, a couple percentage points uh, in May. And uh, as well, the measurement we have stopped in the middle of May from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So uh, we don't know where uh, the economy has gone more recently. We don't know what monetary and fiscal policy will do going forward. We, uh, I think the risk is that fiscal policy will do less than is required. We don't know uh, what will happen with the fundamental underlying cause of all of this, which is the virus itself. How long will it be until uh, the, there's a vaccine or antiviral therapies? In my uh, neighborhood, these, uh, aspects of extraordinary uncertainty have very clear implications. They uh, breed, I think correctly, a distrust of the models whenever those models are being taken into unprecedented territory. They cause monetary policymakers to want to take out more insurance. Figuratively speaking here, I used a flood analogy. You want to build higher levees if a 500-year flood is coming every 10 years. So uh, in general, it's wise when uncertainty rises to build up uh, the safeguards. And then finally, it's best in the face of uncertainty to structure your policy responses so they evolve automatically as circumstances change. And that, of course, is the beauty of automatic stabilizers. So the question I would leave off as a possible element for discussion later on in the hour is, do these lessons have analogs in the dating world? Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, David. Um, this was, uh, from my perspective, an incredible amount of wisdom and experience packed in three slides. So um, uh, I'm, uh, I'm personally grateful. Uh, Anne, do you want to answer David's last question to stop our conversation? And uh, I'll take it from there. Yes, happy to. That's great. Thanks, David, for the uh, provocative questions. I think that you really put your finger on one of the key challenges that analysts, both at Moody's and I think the, what the market generally has been struggling with, is how to digest this level of uncertainty, how to look through the fog and try to you know, figure out what does the path look like. And the path forward is a function of so many uncertain variables itself. It's a function of whether we get a vaccine, how effective these policies of, of lockdown and reopening will be in containing the virus and whether we get a resurgence of that, whether consumers start to feel better about things and get back to work, get back to spending, what kind of lasting effects or you know, lasting scars will the economy have coming out of this? And so each of those things really has to inform our thinking about 
when we go to do a projection of a company's top line revenue or its expenditure and its future profitability, is it going to emerge from this crisis stronger or weaker? And you know, if we look out two to three years, that's one thing. Um, trying to see ahead even six months is another. Um, we're, we're actually trying to take a longer view to look out two to three years and identify the companies that are um, going to emerge weaker than where they started and weaker not only at their rating category, but relative to their peer companies, what their business model might look like, what their competitive advantages will be, their ability to generate those profits in the future and support their debt, right? Obviously our perspective is all about how does a company repay its debt, the likelihood of doing that. And from that narrow perspective, we do have to take a view. Um, so how do we cope with these levels of uncertainty? One of the things that we do is scenario analysis. We basically have to make a certain set of assumptions. Um, for the airline industry, for example, we set out a path of recovery that's faster and one that's slower. And then within those scenarios, we say, okay, how does the company first and foremost shore up its liquidity? A lot of airlines now have uh, almost two years worth of cash on their balance sheet if they're in investment grade. The ones that are weaker have a lot less cash and are really struggling or maybe looking for some government support um, beyond what's already been provided. Um, but with those scenarios, we can then do that kind of more accurate forecasting and get some range of possible outcomes. And then if the range of outcomes, that distribution of possible outcomes is sort of outside of what we would expect for a given rating level, then we will move the rating up or down accordingly. So that's one of the ways that we can get our arms around some of the uncertainty, but it is really a leap of faith in some, in some cases to make, to make the assumptions and pick what are the, you know, the, the range of outcomes uh, you know, we didn't anticipate a pandemic uh, on January when we published our outlook for 2020. We weren't expecting a pandemic. It's not something that I think would have had a lot of credibility at that point if we had said there would have been one. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's partly it's a matter of, you know, trying to look forward and make a best judgment, an analytical judgment about what the future will hold. Um, but maybe I'll stop there and see if you have other reactions. Well, um, one thing I want to say uh, is that we want to collect questions from the audience. We have a fantastic group of attendees, and I encourage them to participate. So there are two ways to participate. One is to use the Q&A function on Zoom at the bottom of your screen, uh, and I will collect the questions and relay them to our guests. The other way is to raise your hand. Uh, and uh, with the raise hand function of Zoom, and I will see that and uh, have the option to give you the microphone. So both, both are okay. Uh, you can either uh, basically go for a written question or an oral uh, intervention, which of course should be succinct and uh, based on a question. Um, so um, I have a first question to Anne, uh, which is from myself. Uh, your slide eight show the default rate uh, a very different default rate uh, between the US and, uh, and Europe. And, uh, and, and indeed, uh, the default rate in Europe was not that high. So can you expand a bit on that and uh, tell us a bit about the difference? Yeah, sure. So um, first, the, the actual defaults that have occurred um, have been lower in Europe than they have been in the US. I think that's probably not totally surprising. Um, given the avenues that the U.S. companies have to pursue in terms of bankruptcies, uh, we probably would be inclined to see more distressed exchanges in Europe where those, where those are happening. Um, interestingly, the um, expectation coming into this was uh, that when we had a crisis, we didn't know what the catalyst for that would be um, or the source of that would be. But when we had a crisis, we would expect the default rate to actually be quite a bit higher than what we saw during the global financial crisis. And we also expected recoveries to be lower. Um, and our expectation was that the US would be the highest, that um, the buildup of corporate debt has, has been a significant um, element of dynamic over the last several years. We've had a weakening of covenants, which exacerbates 
some of the the weakness in the lowest um, in the in the weakest part of the high yield market. Um, and there's really been an unending appetite by investors to lend to corporates, no matter what. So we've had many, many more new, newly rated, first-time rated corporates come to market in the last several years. So we've been signaling that there were risks building in the corporate sector, corporate space for quite a while, and most of that was in the U.S. and not so much in Europe. Uh, so that's um, to note. I think that the um, the actually we just published our default rate forecasts. Uh, updated ones for the month of June. And we are starting to see that default rate, that peak default rate forecast come down a little bit to closer to 9% from 10%. Last month it was 11%. So, um, you know, as this crisis evolves, and, and David talked about the reliance on models, our default rate forecast is built on a model. It's a pretty simple model, and it's never met a crisis like the one we're facing. So let's see how it performs. It's performed pretty well over about 30 years. Um, it takes into account high yield spreads, the rating distribution, the momentum of rating actions or deterioration within the rating distribution, and then the unemployment rate as a broad indicator of the economy. And with um, spreads coming in significantly and the unemployment rate staying high, um, we take into account the change in the unemployment rate. It's, the model doesn't really react well to that high level of unemployment rate. It's looking for a change in the unemployment rate. Um, so the model's not performing that well, and we're having to do some smoothing to account for that. Um, but our expectation is that those, those default rates will come down. So just uh, for understanding, your, your peak default rate is already passed uh, in your understanding of the sequence of the crisis, or do you expand, expect more default until reaching the peak, say, at some point later this year or something? Yeah, like? I, think, I think it peaks later, a little bit later this year. Um, so with the one-year default rate forecast is looking at what would the default rate be a year from now. Um, so we'll have a... a the current rate is like five or six percent, and it will rise, you know, steadily up to about ten, and then it'll come back down a little bit. So I have a question from Oral Schubert, uh, which many of us know as a former chief statistician of the ECB, the European Central Bank, and he's asking what kind of additional data would you have liked to have to reduce uncertainty? Would big data be of help? And that's a question I meet a lot in discussions with market participants and other uh, interlocutors. So um, in a way, do we have any um, indicators that would, you know, other than the obvious one to uh, reduce the huge uncertainties that David uh, uh, convincingly, in my view, presented us? I'd like to have both of you answering this question, if possible, make succinct answers because we already have many questions. Yeah, I mean, I think one interesting area is a little more certainty around government policy response. So where we, where a government plans to provide additional support for corporates, where a government plans to provide maybe an extension of the payroll protection program, or where there's an expectation that they will or won't provide support to a given industry. You know, that's often very hard to predict what the government response will be, especially when it comes to individual companies. Um, so having um, that, that's a common conversation that we have with sovereigns is, is sort of, what is the probability of you stepping in and supporting a given company or a given industry in the time of crisis? And having, having a little more of a clear statement of intent on that is always helpful to us. David? Yeah, uh, it's an important question. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly with Anne's uh, comments just now. Um, in terms of macro uh, measurement, it's really hard uh, to do well. What the uh, statistical agencies do is tremendously difficult. One of the initiatives that we undertook uh, at the Fed that I thought was extremely uh, helpful at the time and it has paid huge dividends since is that is to build on the indispensable platform of the statistical agencies. With, we had two projects that were very successful. One was we had a partnership with ADP that gave us access to their proprietary uh, data on uh, payroll employment. And so the Fed staff- That's uh, ADP advanced data processing, right? The payroll 
company? Yes, ADP is a payroll processing uh, company that, that processes uh, the, the pay stubs for approximately 20% of American workers uh, every month. And you, unlike the BLS, uh, they don't have a, a problem with non-response from their clients because if their clients don't respond, they're not uh, clients anymore. The other similar franchise was with a, a data aggregator that collected information on card swipes from credit cards and debit cards called First Data. And uh, that gave us near real-time visibility into consumer spending. Again, not a substitute for the information that's put out by the Census Bureau, but a, an important complement to uh, economic measurement is incredibly hard to do. Uh, it's worth investing in. You get what you pay for. Um, it's uh, extremely important in circumstances like right now. So I have a question, actually two questions on a relatively limited segment of the uh, universe, which is uh, private equity and also covenant life loan. So there's a question from David Clayton uh, to, to you, Anne. We have more limited information, but uh, I would be interested in your highlighting what the major balance sheet stresses in the private equity sector are. And there's also a question from Thomas. Um, I don't know which Thomas. Uh, how would you impact the impact of the increasingly large share of leverage loans um, being covenant light? So, so can you quickly take those two? Sure. Yeah. The um, you know private equity has been increasingly active in um, the high yield market in uh, recent years, and that private ownership and um, you know, real need to extract value quickly from, from companies with private equity owners is, is part of the, the dynamic that we've seen over the last several years play out and has, has left a lot of companies with a lot higher debt levels coming into this crisis than maybe in the past. I think that also has um, partly informed, you know, which parts of the market the government has provided support to. Um, there is a sense of not putting good money after bad um, where you have a company that's going to have a very hard time um, absent some kind of a debt restructuring to get back on its feet. So I would say, you know, pr the private equity participation in companies has been really broadly represented across a variety of sectors. It hasn't been limited to, say, oil and gas or, you know, anything else. It's, it's really been very broad-based. Um, and the hallmark of that is has left a lot higher debt levels um, across many of those companies, which which creates some really interesting challenges and dynamics for this crisis. Um, if you think about the number of, of smaller and medium-sized businesses that um, are a huge part of our economy, they are going to be left with higher debt levels and having... Um, those companies will have a harder time contributing to the growth trajectory coming out of this crisis as a result. I think it's, it's that kind of a debt overhang for many corporates means that they won't be in a position to invest and hire. They won't be in a position to help grow the economy coming, coming out of this. So I would say that's probably one of the legacies that we'll look back on is the, the role of private equity in thinking about um, how companies have become more levered and uh, weaker covenants is part of that picture. We have, um, that gives, in some sense, it gives companies more flexibility to do what they need to do during uh, periods of stress. Um, in other instances, it, what it means is that uh, once they do go into a default, if, if a default happens, then recoveries will be lower, um, partly as a result of that. I have a question, uh, which is about the evolution of your thinking over the last three months, right? Because uh, the picture we have now in early June is very different from the one we had, say, two months ago in early April. Uh, we've learned a lot about contagion patterns, about what happens when you exit the lockdown. We've learned a lot also about policy. Uh, so uh, where, how, how has your thinking um, evolved over time uh, about this, and uh, to put it bluntly, are you more pessimistic, more optimistic uh, than you have been in previous weeks of the pandemic uh, with maybe a differentiated answer, whether it's Europe or the US? Yeah, that's a great question. 
question. I do think that we have learned a lot over the last couple of months. We know a lot more about um, uh, you know, the government response. We know a lot more about how markets can get back quickly back to, to functioning pretty smoothly. Um, we've seen uh, companies react really quickly and um, people be incredibly resilient and adaptable. So I actually think behavior, you know, behavioral change has happened, has, we've learned a lot about how people can behave and, and uh, adapt. Um, I would say that one, in terms of like managing the ratings, I would say we intentionally went out with a very sort of deliberate, careful, measured approach. We didn't want to do any kind of knee-jerk reactions or major um, movements across the whole rating scale. Um, we felt like we wanted to look through the cycle and see how things evolved and, and wait and see. And in that way, our actions have been more measured, I think, than maybe the initial market reactions were. We often see you know, market-implied measures like uh, market-implied ratings or CDS or uh, high yield spreads move out dramatically and then come back in. Um, and our ratings are intended to be a bit more stable and a bit more measured in our response. Um, they're meant to be a, a medium term look at credit risk and not an immediate reflection of a, a market sentiment or a market uh, feeling. Um, Basically, you may have been a bit more pessimistic than your ratings expressed at the beginning of the phase and you're back to normal, right? So do I get I, right? I think that's probably a fair statement, Nicholas. You know, we took a lot of rating actions that were like, oh, we're going to put a negative outlook or we're going to put something on review for downgrade, but we didn't move things four or five notches down like the market would, the market indicators would suggest we would do. Um, and so, and we do know a lot more now. I think we still see downside risks with the economic outlook. We still see a lot of uncertainties around the, the path of the pandemic and how quickly it will be contained, whether it will be a resurgence, how quickly people will get back to work, um, and uh, how long-term unemployment may be affected by this, how income inequality may be exacerbated by this. So there's still a lot of things that we're thinking about in terms of credit after COVID you know, what are the long lasting effects of this? But I think for, um, for now, I'm less negative than I was three months ago. Uh, I'll come back to David on this, but just uh, as a follow-up, there's a question from Richard Portes at London Business School, who uh, precisely asked whether you can rate through the cycle, given that this is not a normal business cycle uh, and, uh, and how resilient your pledge to uh, have ratings that are not affected by market development that are Kind of stable over time, uh, how that um, uh, can uh, you know sustain the shock? Yeah, great, great insight there. I think the um, the ratings definitely do move with the cycle. Ratings are not immune to uh, a recession. So if we we actually studied this and looked back over a thirty year period to see how uh, ratings move with different cycles, and actually one one of our studies went back to I think nineteen twenty to see exactly how ratings move. We, we have been around for 100 years, so we have a lot of good history to work with in examining our own behavior. Uh, but in that period, we were able to say, you know, on average, ratings moved about a half a notch um, uh, through time and, and uh, through, through economic recessions, whereas the market-implied indicators moved multiple notches um, or a greater share of the portfolio moved many notches um, during the, those those recession periods. Uh, so the ratings are not immune. They are going to move down. Some of them will, a uh, good share will move down, but not nearly to the extent that market implied ratings would move. David, uh, I'd like to get back to you on the question of, you know, um, uh, cycles of pessimism and optimism uh, in the last two, three months. Can you give us a sense of where you have been and how you see the evolution over that time period? Uh, of the outlook seen from your uh, perspective? Yeah. Um, look, anybody who's honest could not but say that they've been surprised uh, over the past three or four months. Who, uh, I attended the, the American Economic Association annual meetings in, at the beginning of January. And at that conference, all the talk was about what the therapeutic 
effects could be if this uh, record setting expansion continued for years to come. Uh, if Ben Bernanke, who gave the presidential address in January in San Diego, had uttered the words that the unemployment rate by May would be in double digits, he would have been uh, regarded as, as having some kind of uh, a, an awful delusion. So in, in a way, my question, sorry to interrupt, was more about the evolution of your thinking since, say, mid-March, since when we started realizing that this was a big deal. Uh, and yeah. there are cycles since. Right. What I think we've learned is that the the situation uh, is probably not going to become, uh, not going to quickly reverse. I think there, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about that. We still could have a very rapid uh, rebound, but I think what we're learning is that the damage is more deep-seated, partly because it's concentrated in certain communities, partly because it's concentrated among certain demographic groups, partly because it's concentrated in certain skills and occupations. And so the African-American community, for example, is going to suffer long lasting uh, damage from this. We can see that in, I'll just mention two different uh, ways. We see it in the fact that uh, by one estimate, only 12% of minority owned enterprises, small businesses, received a loan from the PPP program compared to 38% of uh, other small businesses. So a hugely disparate effect there. We see it in the difficulty that individuals have had in applying for and receiving unemployment insurance benefits, where some states, for example, Florida have essentially, as best as I can tell, deliberately made it difficult to receive unemployment insurance benefits. And when the unemployment rate for African-Americans is above 16% and for Hispanics is above 17% compared to 12% for whites, that fact, that impediment alone has a disparate effect across races and ethnicities. Uh, that's going to concentrate the economic pain in certain communities and that will make the pain more difficult to recover from mean that the damage is more long lasting. So that's probably the, 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 the foremost evolution in my thinking that this is in some respects anyway, the damage from this uh, economic collapse is not going to be easy or quick to repair. I have a different question, which comes from uh, Jose Maria Rodan, who is uh, uh, the head of the Spanish Banking Association. And he's, uh, noting that we've had two 500 or 100 whatever years event in 10 years. So um, looking at raising the height of the dam, uh, higher capital for banks, for example, would only be justified if this was not sheer bad luck, but something more structural, like, you know, uh, basically how we think of the frequency of such events is, has to be uh, revisited. And that echoed some aspects of your presentation, uh, David. So maybe starting with you, David, first, how do you think about that? And should we basically, um, do we have reason to believe that, you know, uh, so what we call 100 years events are really 10 years or five years events? Yeah, just two, uh, two brief uh, comments on that. First of all, uh, it's absolutely correct that one can over-prepare uh, for disasters. That historically has not been our mistake. Uh, but uh, it would be um, it is possible to overinsure. There's no no question about that. A hesitancy about raising the levees, the the flood protections, would be, well, gee, are you so sure that you had them at an appropriate level before? Maybe we didn't have the levees uh, high enough before. That was certainly the case in the mid 2000s, coming into the financial crisis. We concluded that we had no. Uh, nowhere near the financial stability protections or safeguards in place that were uh, required. I think the other uh, uh, observation I would make is that long periods of financial placidity where nothing happens tend to breed complacency and tend to breed a progressive undermining of the regulatory structure. Now, obviously that will have come to a screeching halt here, but I hope that over the coming years, 
uh, one to five years, we take a careful social collective assessment of whether the progressive weakening and relaxation of some of the Dodd-Frank uh, regulatory uh, strictures, whether that was wise or whether those need to be uh, reinforced against the possibility that, you know what, we have had two 500-year floods in a dozen years. Maybe we should be prepared for something bad uh, in the near future. Well, as somebody who spends a lot of my time looking at capital, uh, at bank capital and capital requirements, um, I certainly say thank God for Basel III that we had this transition before this shock hit. Uh, and that puts into perspective a number of voices from the banking industry that have spent the last decade saying Basel III was too high uh, as a dam. Um, but um, enough from me. Uh, and how do you think about this issue of the frequency of low frequency events? Yeah, it's a really good question, and I think it raises a lot of interesting policy questions. Um, uh, from a credit perspective, the way we try to look at that is is to you know do stress testing for all the banks that we rate. I think we have over close to ninety banking systems around the world that we rate, and for all the banks in those systems, which is about nine hundred, we do bank stress tests. We've also started to do some reverse stress testing where you figure out what's the stress that breaks a bank and what would be the kind of events that lead to that kind of a failure. Um, and then, you know, it's a good it's a good way to sanity check. Do we have the right capital buffers? Do we have the right uh, macro prudential policies? Do we have the right regulatory frameworks? And um, those are those are really tough questions. That's why we look to the Peterson Institute to help us navigate some of those issues. Um, I have a hand raised from um, the Peterson Institute, uh, but also formerly the Fed um, and Treasury, uh, Edwin Tr Truman, Fed. I, I thought, doesn't matter. I thought you said I, my question was out of. <laughs> oh, okay, but uh, you still have your hand raised. So, uh, no, 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 it's fine, but ignore me. Um, well, Ted's question was about emerging markets, and do you want to say a very brief word about that? Uh, sure, absolutely. I think, you know, the, the, the main topic that we're seeing uh, play out in emerging markets is that um, is the, the IMF and World Bank proposals to provide some aid to poorer countries. And uh, from a credit perspective, this is this is a quite a, a challenging and um, uh, a complicated topic in the sense that where we have some um, official sector debt relief and where we would expect private sector debt relief to follow, that is, in our view, um, going to result in a loss of um, value to bondholders or some diminished uh, payment to bondholders relative to the original promise to pay. That, that essentially... Um, uh, equates to a loss of, for bondholders and a default in, in our view. So it's a bit tricky because on the one hand, as helpful as that aid is, um, the debt relief itself can, um, can create some additional challenges for that borrower to get back on its feet, to reestablish itself in the capital markets, to um, kind of move past what we, what we would consider to be a default event. Um, so that's probably the, ma the main topic and policy debate that's that's been happening um, for emerging markets. For emerging market corporates, um, there is some additional stress as well. Obviously, when you have you know a, a pandemic um, and um, you don't have the same policy levers and abilities that you have in some of the advanced economies, uh, those corporates are not going to benefit from the kinds of government support and quick response that we've seen in advanced economies. Um, and in many cases, those corporates, um, you know, they don't have sort of the same support structure that you would see. Uh, so anybody who's caught out with either high levels of foreign currency borrowing or high levels of, um, you know, impact of exchange rate movements, um, currency depreciation, those kinds of things are, are going to be really hit, hit quickly and hit the hardest. I have two questions which are very similar. One is from Thomas Dorn and the other from David Muir. Um, so 
it's about liquidity. Are you worried about the huge amounts of liquidity in the market? Could that lead to misallocations, lack of appropriate price differentiation in credit markets? Um, it may lead to lead to you know zombie companies staying alive, um, capital misallocation again, lower growth. Um, is there too much liquidity around? Uh, when is a good moment to start worrying about moral hazard? Um, can you both give us very quick takes on this? Anne? Okay, yeah, that's that's uh, a lot of different topics all in one one question, but that's great. Um, I would say that you know I, I think I mentioned at the beginning of my comments that with in in, in March it was all about how do we open up and support the investment grade bond market. Then it, it was in, in April, it was like, how do we get high yield bond market back up and running? And then the spread started to come in and we've started to see just a very you know, small movement towards high yield loan markets um, opening back up. And so that suggests to me that some of that liquidity is starting to be put back to work. Um, and that's that's favorable, you know, it's, this is, actually happened all in a very compressed period of time. If you think about where we are today, 90 days into the crisis, relative to say where we were 90 days into the global financial crisis, things have happened with, with great speed and, and with incredibly aggressive policy action. Um, and so I, I'm, I guess I'm, um, it's hard to see when you're in the middle of it, right? You don't know exactly what, what it is that you're, um, you're hoping to, to happen next in terms of where all that liquidity ends up going. Um, so I, I would defer to other market participants to tell us, you know, kind of where look to next, um, where, where the liquidity goes. And it does, it does create some real challenges. I think there's a window of opportunity now for some companies to get in, refinance at lower rates. Um, move their debt out longer term and reduce their 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 overall borrowing costs or debt servicing costs. That's certainly an opportunity for sovereigns too, especially the highly rated sovereigns. They can get in, borrow longer at low rates and lock in those low rates. So there there are some opportunities here to put some of that um, liquidity to work, especially where there's appetite for high grade investment. So we're getting close to the uh, closing time of our session, but I'll take five more minutes because I still have a few things I'd like to cover before adjourning. Uh, first, David, very quickly on that question of liquidity, uh, you cannot escape the question, you're a former Fed person. So in my world, concerns about excess liquidity arise in two contexts. One is uh, inflation that runs higher than the central bank wants, and the other is financial instability. Uh, at the moment, I mean, initially when, when the coronavirus shock first hit, there was quite a lot of speculation that it might actually be an inflationary shock, that the cut, cutback in supply might be so severe that prices might go up. The preliminary uh, evidence suggests that in fact, it's the other way around. As most of us expected, the, the complete collapse of demand has caused inflation to soften further. So that doesn't at this point seem to be uh, a concern. Obviously, central bank credibility and the determination of the Fed to stick to its 2% inflation objective is important in uh, containing inflation expectations. The other is financial instability. And I'll simply say there that that underscores the incredible importance of the heightened surveillance that the Fed, uh, including its staff, but all across the reserve banks as well, the heightened surveillance that the Fed is applying to various different dimensions of financial stability. It's a night and day different operation than it was a dozen years ago in the lead up to the financial crisis. So you don't worry about the capital misallocation, which was mentioned in both questions? Uh, in a word, no. Uh, by far, the greater concern in my mind is reemployment of idle resources. That's a huge threat to the social fabric. It's a huge threat to uh, the long-term damage that this collapse could undertake. Um, I, uh, you know, the day when we uh, entertain as a first order concern capital mis misallocation, that will be a pretty good day. That's a day that's pretty far down the road from when we're at a 13 plus unemployment uh, rate in the United States. 
Well, as a European, I certainly worry about zombification, but that's a slightly different context, I guess, from the US. And let me uh, follow up to that question also, picking up on what you just said, David, about financial stability. And it's a very simple question. Um, will the banking, I mean, we, we've heard Neil Kashkari, for example, in the US calling for uh, recapitalization uh, of banks from the market. You mentioned 200 billion. Uh, we've heard um, a number of voices in Europe uh, wondering whether there would be a need for a bad bank or a public recapitalization. Uh, so the European Central Bank, as a banking supervisor, has used this metaphor of crossing the desert, right? Banks have enough capital to cross the desert of the pandemic and the associated shock. So how do, how do you think, um, uh, Anne, about the ability of the banking sectors in both Europe I, let's say the Eurozone and into US to cross the desert or will there be a need for kind of system-wide approach to bringing more capital? And if we don't know yet the answer of this question, uh, when do you think we'll have a sense of that answer? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the, the large uh, global investment banks, you know, they, their balance sheets um, are, in, and this is the sort of the 13 large global systemically important banks. They're large universal banks, including some of the European banks. Um, we have we have stable outlooks on them. They have very very strong balance sheets, capital and liquidity positions. They have conservative regulatory and stress testing, both in the U.S. and the U.K. More diversified business lines. Um, so we think this is enough to offset this this period of temporary um, slower growth and or negative growth and and low interest rates and um, you know we're 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 more worried about the non the non bank finance entities the mortgage servicers the installment payday lenders um, and some of the weaker the weaker entered entities but these these aren't you know systemically important enough to. Um, together to really create a uh, major financial instability from our perspective. David, are you equally sanguine? I think I'll uh, uh, take a pass on that, that question. I, I don't think I have anything interesting to add uh, relative to uh, Anne's comments. So we're, we're uh, two minutes past our time. Uh, I cannot resist asking a last question and I apologize to uh, some of our attendees because I didn't pick up all the questions that came through the q and uh, We were able to address most, but not all. But the last one I'd like to address is, uh, is to you, Anne, again, uh, one from Elliot Posner, uh, has, uh, who is uh, at uh, Cass Western U Reserve University in Ohio. Uh, has the post-crisis, um, the post-financial crisis regulatory reform with respect to credit rating agencies and beyond mattered in terms of Moody's preparation and reaction to this crisis? Yeah, great. Okay, this is a very rating agency specific question, which is good. I, I think that, um, you know, what has been helpful is we, you know, starting several years ago, started to put in place a lot more rigor and process and kind of um, robustness around the models that we use, the, the methodologies that we use, the process for approving and updating methodologies, getting market feedback into those. We have um, more centrally coordinated resources. Um, I'm a beneficiary of that. My team is, is basically focused on identifying global threats or emerging risks that allow us to connect the dots across sectors and say, well, what happens in the airlines or the autos or the oil and gas has these downstream effects across the economy or across different industries. And, and so really trying to connect the dots across um, different uh, parts of the economy and the markets. So those centralized resources top down, uh, complement the bottom up expertise of the analysts and together we're, we act in a more coordinated way. Um, so we don't have uh, someone doing one thing uh, on the right hand and another on the left hand doing, doing something totally different. So I think that we're more consistent and we're more robust as a result of that. You could say that's regulation, or it's just you know painful learning from the from the crisis that that brought that about. Um, I think you know going forward, the um, 
the, the things that will serve us well or where we're able to be really clear to the market, transparent about how we approach things. Um, people want to know what we think, and that's great. I, I, you know, we're always looking for more feedback about how we can do better on that front. Thank you. And on that note, I want to thank our two um, guests, uh, Anne Van Praak from Moody's, David Wilcox at the Peterson Institute. Uh, this, by the way, will be our usual format as it is uh, very often in also uh, the Trade Win series uh, coordinated by Annabel Gonzalez, uh, where we have an exchange, not just uh, with me as moderator, but another colleague at the Institute to be able to uh, pick up on, uh, on the issues at the moment. Uh, I found it a very rich session. I'm very grateful to uh, our guests. I'm grateful to all the participants uh, who uh, gave this new series a bit of a test drive. Uh, we'll uh, have a new session in about two weeks' time with Dietrich Domanski of the Financial Stability Board. So we'll look through the G20 reforms of the past 12 years or so uh, and see how they pass the test of the COVID crisis, I guess. Uh, thanks very much for attending this session, uh, which is now adjourned.